platforms and now we'll get going here alrighty welcome to the breakdown with Birkenoff episode 6 and just give a quick intro as to what the breakdown with Birkenoff is and then we'll get right into the podcast so the breakdown with Birkenoff is essentially a live stream show that I do on my YouTube and DLive at Roundtable Decision and my Twitch channel at Roundtable Talk. And basically, it's a commentary over news with my thoughts and what I think might happen in the future or just my general thoughts over the topic, such as protest or anything else. But it's more just kind of thinking out loud and getting to understand an issue. I am going to do individual podcasts over certain issues as well, such as gun control or abortion, and make those a whole topic where we really kind of dig in deep to to that topic and kind of understand it. Because I believe all people, regardless of your opinion, believe something and may not necessarily know every detail behind it. Basically, you might have a belief that you feel strongly in, but the more you look at it, the more your opinion might change or maybe even increase due to more evidence. So that's kind of the approach I take on my podcast and on my uh, YouTube channel, as I do make individual videos on there as well. Again, roundtable decision for my YouTube channel. And also, if you want to... Uh, follow my alerts to watch one of these podcasts live because I do try to read your comments and uh, try to understand your thoughts to these issues as well. But now that we got kind of that intro out of the way, I'm going to quickly mention Freedom Scoop. Freedom Scoop is a group of content creators that are, are independent and express their thoughts and commentary over news and other political topics to uh, provide a different perspective besides mass media because I do think it's important that people understand a perspective different than the one they always are used to hearing in the mass media and all of that. So Freedom Scoop is very important especially if you like this type of content uh, that I'm doing on my podcast or anything else. So I would highly suggest you checking out Stephen and Garamus, Jay Edgar, the Generational Grap, our R-rated conservatives, and we also have the Freckles and Brit show now on YouTube as well. So if you like this content any, uh, you might want to check them out as well because they do provide very good perspectives. And I will be talking about uh, Jay Edgar's channel here in a little bit on my podcast. Now one last thing, and I promise this is my last sort of announcement. Originally, I was going to be doing this podcast at the college I'm going to now, and obviously those that are listening to the podcast on Apple or Spotify aren't really going to notice much, but those that are listening on live stream might notice that it's the same office that I originally was doing the podcast in, and that's because I'm back home due to the hurricane and classes got canceled and all that, so I decided since it got canceled over the couple days, I was going to just go back since I live pretty close. So the next podcast and my next videos on my YouTube channel are going to be at the college unless COVID decides otherwise. But I just thought I would quickly give that announcement in case you were slightly confused if you listened to my last podcast where I mentioned I was going to college to take classes. Now to the physical podcast itself. 
So there has been a lot of news going around uh, this week, as there's kind of always been. There hasn't really been too many slow weeks in a news cycle. But one of the big topics or big stories is obviously the Kenosha protest. And Jay Edgar, who I mentioned earlier, has done several videos on this. And I guess I'll show his channel at first. I was going to wait a little bit, but I'll just show it now because it pertains to what I'm talking about as well. But if you're interested in seeing raw footage of the protest and of the damage it's done to buildings and everything else, you can go to Jay Egger's channel on YouTube and watch many clips that he's made where he's live streamed walking through the area. And I'm not going to play any on air, but I just wanted to quickly mention Jay Egger's channel again and give another shout out to it, especially because it relates to the Kenosha protest and all that. And that's a very important topic and the first topic that I'm going to be covering in today's podcast. So, Kenosha. Now, obviously, before I mention Kenosha uh, fully, I just wanted to quickly mention the, the, the topic of protesting in general. So, 2020 has almost been the year of protest. And when I say almost, I do think that it fits that, that narrative quite well. You had the initial protest due to George Floyd's death. And obviously the more footage that has come out has made the situation a little more blurry when it comes to if it was actually 100% murder by the police officer and main officer that was physically on or kneeling on uh, George George's neck. And obviously we all know what happened to George Floyd through that video and through the surrounding uh, areas and and what happened to uh, George Floyd's timeline, I guess you could call it. And essentially, he was then buried and kind of glorified politically for what happened to him. And the BLM movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, decided to make it a stance as one of their issues. And obviously, in one of my first podcasts and videos, I covered that topic uh uh, pretty pretty well, or at least I covered a topic to to my original thoughts of the George Floyd protests. And the George Floyd's protests have gone over several months now, and racial injustice and police brutality are among its biggest figures. And obviously these are issues that do need to be changed and do need to be talked about, but the way the protests are and the way the protests were in the George Floyds weren't necessarily peaceful in the matter. Now, obviously, you had your peaceful manners and you had your peaceful people within the George Floyd protest where you had the people, I believe, in Houston, if I'm remembering right, where they got on their knees for the amount of time that um, George Floyd had the knee of the officer on his neck. But now there has been several more protests, and the most important protest, or at least the latest protest to this podcast airing on the 27th, <laughs> on the 27th, is the Kenosha protest. And the Kenosha protests are basically sparked after a police brutality aspect, or a police brutality incident. And we're also going to be mentioning Jacob Blake. Although those two may not be 100% related to each other, I was going to put them on this part of the podcast because they do relate to basically the same sort of issue at hand. And that is police brutality and uh, peaceful protest or protest in general in relating to the uh, Kenosha incident and other incidents. So 
That is why the podcast is titled The Protests Continue in Relating to Kenosha, and uh, later on you'll uh, learn a little bit more. So this article is by NPR, and it is called Peaceful Protest in Kenosha Was as Demonstrators Remember Shooting Victims. So again, this is in relating to uh, police brutality, and most importantly, school shootings are are not even really school shootings as well, but simply police brutality and uh, and shootings of officer and mostly relating to black, uh, Black Lives Matter and black people uh, for the protests. Anyway, I don't think that that really needs to be said needs to be said that much because if you followed any sort of news, you would know that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protest and what's happening. But just in case if you didn't, most of these protests are over an incident of a white officer shooting a black kid or a black uh, person. Protest over a police shooting of black father in Kenosha, Wisconsin, continue for a fourth straight night on Wednesday. Though the gatherings again defied the country-imposed curfew, the demonstrators remained mostly peaceful. And just before I forget, on my YouTube channel and wherever you might listen to your podcast, I do have Jay Eggers' link to those videos directly, so you don't have to go searching really yourself if you do want to watch the Kenosha uh, uh, protest there. And I'll continue. The crowds were smaller than one than on previous nights, and the relative calm was a stark contrast to the scene that unfolded during the third night on protests, which turned chaotic and deadly. Law enforcement, law enforcement, <laughs> law enforcement officials approached the 17-year-old Kylie Rittenhouse, who was facing a charge of first-degree intentional homicide in connection with the shooting of two people during demonstrations late Tuesday. A third person was also shot but is expected to survive. Police did not name the shooting victims but said the fatalities were both in Kenosha area of residence. One was 26 years old and the other was 36. The shootings of the three protesters appeared to change the tenor of demonstrators Wednesday night. One of the protest organizers, lifelong Kenosha resident Porsche Bennett, called for a moment of silence to remember the shooting victims along with Jacob Blake, who was shot multiple times Sunday at a close range and severely wounded by a police officer. After the moment of silence, Bennett implored protesters to go home at the curfew time, which authorities moved up an hour to 7 p.m. We don't want what happened on Tuesday night to happen again, Bennett yelled through a megaphone. Remain safe, please. We are begging, we are asking y'all, please go home and get home safely. Bennett, 31, said she knew the two people who were killed, adding that all three victims were daily fixtures at the protest against police shooting and racial inequality. One of them said she called my hippie guy because of his long hair, beard, and the way he dressed, and she said he protected her from rubber bullets police were firing during one of the first nights of the protest. They were sweet, really sweet guys, she said while fighting back tears. The investigation into the shooting is ongoing. At Wednesday afternoon, press briefings officials said they were unclear what led to suspect to use deadly force. Rittenhouse, who was arrested in nearby Kenosha, about 50 miles southwest of Kenosha across the Wisconsin-Illinois border, border sorry, is a staunch supporter of law enforcement. 
On social media posts, he is seen as posing for a picture of public safety cadet program in Chicago's northern suburbs. And this also posted tributes to Chicago officers who had been killed in line of duty. And this article goes on a little bit longer, but that was the real important section and the real important topic to the uh, concentration of the event. And basically what I mean by that is that investigation hasn't really ha- hasn't really had too many details come yet. This article is of the same day that I'm recording the podcast, so we don't know that much information. And I heard from somebody, and this was secondhand information, and I wasn't able to find an article on it, so I don't want to take it as has 100% truth, but at the same time, I do think it is something that needs to be considered. It does seem odd that someone would be, would be shot in this manner without necessarily causing the incident to escalate from a simple peaceful protest to much more. So before that evidence comes out, it is interesting or at least speculative to to try to understand the full issue at hand. Obviously, in the George Floyd incident, a lot of people were skeptical that that was 100% truthful in the footage we saw. And it turned out that it was a little more grayer with the body footage cam, cam, uh, body footage and anything and the transcript that got released to George Floyd. So we're still waiting on 100% evidence to come back in relating to this protest in Kenosha. But we also have the incident of Jacob Blake. And Jacob Blake sparked a huge, 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 huge movement within the sports. And that's really kind of my next topic, so I don't want to jump ahead. But Jacob Blake was the the biggest incident or the biggest cause to spark really another form of protesting. And it would be interesting to see if this form of protesting takes on more of a violent uh, route as well. For those that aren't watching live, this is a CNN clip slash article of a uh, footage from this shooting. And it kind of shows... Uh, the perspective of what exactly happened uh, for that shooting. So, you know, you kind of just see the guy walking and it doesn't really look like he's doing very much, but then he's getting shot and you see kind of the commotion coming from the incident of him getting shot. But that's, we'll, we'll, we'll dive in into the article and then I'll kind of give my thoughts about it. And this is again by CNN by Christina Maxaris and Eric Levinson. Levinson. Mm-mm. After three days of silence, nightly protests, fatal shootings at a protest, and a wildcat strike across the sports ward, Wisconsin law enforcement officials finally offered their first version of the Kenosha, or sorry, Kenosha police shooting of Jacob Blake. So obviously these two are related to each other, but the protest turning blind, violent isn't necessarily 100% related to the shooting. And that's what I meant when, when I said it earlier, but I wasn't sure if I made that 100% clear. So I wanted to state that again, just to make sure. On Wednesday night, the Wisconsin Department Justice Division of Criminal Investigation said the incident seemed from a demonic, or sorry, <laughs> demonic, 
seemed from a domestic dispute. Officers arrived and attempted to arrest Blake, a 29-year-old black man, and used a taser in a failed attempt to stop him. The, DC, the DCI said Blake walked around his vehicle, opened the driver's side door, and leaned forward, the agency said. Kenosha official Rustin Skiki, who was seen with the department for seven years, then fired seven times into Blake's back. The agency said no other officers fired their weapon. The agency said Blake attempted. Blake admitted he had a knife in his possession, and law enforcement agencies said they recovered a knife from the driver's side floorboard of Blake's vehicle. Real quick, before I move on, obviously, we still don't know all the information behind the Jacob Blake incident, and any person who dies in the hands of a police officer is something that is is. It's harsh. Now, a lot of people, when especially if they're like suicidal, will want to go out by the hands of police. And that's a whole separate topic and something that I'm not necessarily talking about when I said my, my further statement. But also at the same time, I do think that there's people who are wanting to die at the hands of the police to become a figure and to become somebody that gets uh, propped up or famous in society, even though they might have died from the incidents of the police. And obviously that's more of a conspiratorial point, something I can't prove fully, but the more these protests happen and the more incidents like these show up, the more I kind of think these alternative angles of why people would be motivated to, to do so. But going back to what the article said, now you can't say that him having a knife, and this is me trying to understand the issue. Obviously, I don't think just because the person is black is the reason he got shot seven times or got shot in the first place. Now, obviously, these protests are sparked because of racial tension that gets propped up by mass media. And that's something I'm very big in talking about. I recently made a rant video on my YouTube channel basically talking about how mass media covers stories and how mass media completely didn't cover the story of the five-year-old Canyon who got shot by his black neighbor, but I argued if the roles were reversed, it would have gotten covered. And that's something that I think is almost obvious at this point and is almost creating a sad reality. And I also brought out, brought up on my YouTube video that if there was any incident of, um, I guess you would, the easiest way to say it and how I brought up on my YouTube channel is basically, I think these mass media and the constant coverage of this issue and racial tension and talking about it, yes, it makes people aware, but the mass media is doing it so much, I do think it's creating even more racism in this country. The people that are generally annoyed by this coverage uh, before it became so, so wild and so talked about are now getting angry at it and anger is what causes racial tension and racial bias and anger is something we need to highly avoid and I also argue that I don't think many people see color I do think that the majority of Americans and I would say over 90% as I also said on my YouTube video 
don't necessarily see color of a person, them being black, them being white, them being Asian, them being whatever else skin color you can think of. I don't think that skin color really matters to the average American, but the mass media would make you think that the skin color is the reason and the only thing that people look at. And I do think that this mass media coverage in, in these incidents like this are just creating even more tension where there really shouldn't be. And that is a personal opinion, but I don't think I'm that wild in thinking that. And obviously, if you think so, you can go into my live stream or my Twitter or whatever else and talk to me there. And we can have discourse over it because I do think that it's important to really understand. And I'm not saying that some police shootings are, not, are racially motivated. I do think that that is the case. I do think there are some bad apples within the police department that make these, these protests and make these incidents happen. And that's something that is just completely harsh. But I felt like I needed to kind of get my thoughts in there before I continue on. But I'll continue and uh, continue on. The release is the first official police version of events, but still leaves gaping holes in its timeline and the only outlines of explanation. It does not indicate why the police moved to arrest Blake, whether he brandished or threatened to use the knife, or why Snishki shot so many times into Blake's back, and it does not mention his children in the vehicle or any other family members standing just feet away. So... Real quick again before I move on uh, and read a little bit more of the article. The shooting up in the back seven times does seem quite bizarre. So it would lead you to think, theoretically, if this was a perfect society. Now obviously a murder isn't perfect. But if this was a perfect society within how we live today and how we live our lives. The police officer wouldn't shoot into the back of this person seven times. Uh, if he didn't have a probable cause to do so. And obviously a probable cause of shooting someone seven times in the back does seem quite bizarre. And I don't know what that probable cause would have really been besides a direct threat or, a, or him moving physically to enact that threat of killing the officer with his knife. And obviously we don't know if that was the case. And if evidence comes out saying that that wasn't the case and... Uh, maybe there wasn't a knife, or there was, but he didn't make any movement to the knife. But at the same time, you could argue that a shooting or detaining of Jacob at that point would have been proper police procedure. But obviously, shooting someone seven times without a reasonable cause is not police procedure. So it is interesting to see or to hear what the evidence might be within this case. And this is just me thinking out loud and thinking about the situation. But at the same time, you do have to be aware that the officer shot him seven times. And without the evidence we know now, and just taking uh, the little evidence we have, it is easy to assume that this could be racially motivated or have a cause similar to that through the excessive shooting. Maybe the shooting was just because he reached for the knife, blah, 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 blah. But shooting them seven times does seem a little extreme for the evidence we have so far. But I'll continue. 
The police version of events was released after nightly protests in Kenosha calling for police transparency against anti-black police violence. On Wednesday, a 17-year-old was arrested and charged with a first-degree intentional homicide for his alleged role in shooting incident the night earlier in which two people at a protest were killed and a third was seriously injured, authorities said. The protesters extend the protest extended into sports ward on Wednesday night as the NBA Milwaukee Bucks refused to play a playoff game, sparking wildcat strikes across basketball, baseball, and soccer leagues. And I'm going to get into those stories just a little bit, but I'll continue. On Thursday afternoon, an all-white group of local officers held a press conference to praise peaceful protests and discuss law enforcement in response to prevent rioting in the city. Last night was a very peaceful in Kenosha County, Sheriff David Beth said. On Tuesday night, nor... Not quiet, so peaceful, but it wasn't too bad. Monday night was our big night. Hopefully we are over that hump of what we have to face. After speaking, the Kenosha Mayor, Kenosha County Executive, Kenosha Police Chief, Kenosha County Sheriff, and Wisconsin National Guard General all declined to take questions. And also to further talk about the story and there's a little bit more left but I think we kind of got the full story of this article and the full story of the incident from the information we know so far but there has been further National Guard called into Wisconsin and most importantly Kenosha to ensure that the peaceful protest uh, or to ensure that protesting doesn't become super super violent within its incident I'm going to take a quick drink break before we get into the next kind of secondary topic to the Jacob Plague and Kenosha protesting that are happening. Alrighty. So this article is by CNBC by Abigail Hess, and it's called Why Experts Say the NBA Protest is a Strike, Not a Boycott. Now, quickly talking over the issue at hand, as you heard from the CNN article in that brief sentence, it talked about how the sports ward was starting to protest. Now, obviously, the NBA, and these are, and the NBA has constantly been a organization that is pro-Black Lives Matter, they have it uh, posted everywhere in stadiums when you watch the games, and they've had that stance for a while, and many of the players in the NBA are black individuals, and that's something that a lot of uh, play or a lot of players in the NBA take a personal stance with. In other words, a lot of players in the NBA are Black Lives Matter supporters and donate and talk about Black Lives Matter movement as their... Um, as their uh, charity or as their outreach to 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 the public and to the society. So the NBA has always kind of been big on the Black Lives Matter movement, and especially after the George Floyd incident that sparked many of these protests, uh, the NBA has made a very large stance as to their, their, their overall stance on Black Lives Matter and police brutality, racial injustice, and all these broad subjects. And a lot of people in general are angry at the NBA for making sports political. And you saw that kind of with NASCAR after the Bubba Wallace incident. 
but NASCAR was able to increase some of their viewership through letting a Blue Lives Matter car and other things uh, be demonstrated on, on the race. So they're kind of rejuvenated some of their lost viewers after that incident. But the NBA has constantly kept this stance of Black Lives Matter. And although as an organization, some people might be pissed with it. But at the same time, the NBA has been consistent. So if you're not a fan of Black Lives Matter or you're not a fan of your sports being political, then the NBA is probably not for you. And they have kept that very consistent. But I'll continue to read this article about the NBA and why they don't don't consider it a strike. Are, are, and why experts don't consider it a the protest being a strike or a boycott. On Wednesday, the NBA Milwaukee Bucks refused to take the court for their playoff game against the Orlando Magic to call attention to the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. We are calling for the justice for Jacob Blake and demand the officers to be held accountable, said the team in a statement. For this to occur, it is imperative for the Wisconsin state legislator to reconnect after months of inaction and take up meaningful measures to address issues of police accountability, brutality, and criminal justice reform. We encourage all citizens to educate themselves, take peaceful and responsible action, and remember to vote on November 3rd. Other athletes from the NBA, WMNA, NFL, MLB, and MLS also protested by refusing to play scheduled matches, which may be rescheduled. The collective actions have sparked conversations about police brutality and racial injustice, as well as how such collective actions are described. When the Milwaukee Bucks refused to take the court, many labeled the actions as a boycott, including the Wisconsin Post and the New York Times. Famous athletes such as LeBron James also used the phrase boycott. But others, such as Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have pointed out that such actions may be more accurately described as a strike. And she reads in this tweet, or really she says in this tweet, but NBA players are cordially on strike, withholding labor, not boycotting, withholding their money purchased. The difference is important because it shows their power as workers, and she has that in like asterisks. The courage this takes is profound. WNBA organizing in this movement must be recognized too. Yeah, the WNBA, I don't know why I have so so much trouble saying that uh, acronym, but they made an organized movement or organized measure as a company or as a, as a uh, sports elite to pro- to cancel or really reschedule their games that were scheduled uh, for tomorrow and others. So they essentially wiped out the games that were going to be played instead of the Milwaukee Bucks basically seeming to not take the court as an individual interest. And it, obviously, I'm not a huge NBA fan, and some of the political stuff got on my nerves, but I wasn't necessarily an NBA fan from the start. Because basketball is kind of something I would casually watch and casually talk about. But it never was something I put that much effort into viewing. So basketball never was that really close to me. And I don't think the political stuff in basketball has really made me turn against basketball really. I just don't really choose to watch it. And maybe it leaked into some of how I think into some how I don't want to watch. But it's hard to really say because I don't really... 
view it as that. But at the same time, as a general stance, I don't think sports should necessarily get political. Yes, individual athletes can have outreaches, charities, uh, statements, you know, make it a goal of theirs to talk about a movement such as Black Lives Matter or such as cancer or such as any other thing you might add. But a lead taking a personal stance and making it political is something I'm not really necessarily a fan of. I don't think that sport should be political. I think as an individual, you are allowed to have political uh you're allowed to have political thoughts. Obviously, you're an individual human being, and there's a such thing as freedom of speech. But that can be done in different ways. Now, you could argue that Colin Kaepernick did that in the NFL by taking a knee and by his general statements, and the lead at that time didn't necessarily take that stance. But he did it on the time of his sport, so he did it during the game. And obviously you could say, well, where else is he going to do that? Well, these athletes, even Colin Kaepernick at that time, and obviously he's become more famous for his political activism and other things, but... At the time, he was doing it during a game. And a lot of people, especially in the sports community, just want their sports to be non-political. Yes, athletes outside of the game can have their political opinion. And I don't think any really sports fans are mad about that. But as soon as it's done during the game, or as soon as the lead takes in a, a whole stance, especially in sports, of a political movement or a political thought... It's going to divide the viewership. Some of the viewership is going to watch because they fully believe in it. And it's 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 important to them as individual. And they like that the lead did it. But the other side, because we are very split as a country, is essentially not going to watch or choose not to watch as much. Because they get turned off by sports being in their, um, being in their place of, of freedom. Because a lot of people, when they watch sports, are watching sports to to relax and to kind of tune down from to kind of re- to to tune down from to to watch something that isn't political that as soon as sports has become political a lot of people have been turned off but I'll read into this article a little bit a boycott is where customers stop buying a product as a protest explains Alexander Coven a labor and employment researcher and dean of the uh, ILR school at Cornell University. The strikers where workers stop work as a protest. The NBA WN, WBNA, MOS, and other sports stars are engaged in a strike, not a boycott. Kava continues, what is confusing some people is that they are focusing on the object of the protest rather than the type of action being taken. A strike could be focused on winning higher wages or could be focused on making a political protest. Either action would be a strike since they both involve workers stopping work to make a point. So I think that's all I really needed to read from this article to understand uh, the NBA and kind of why they did it as a strike, as a as a gesture to show that they support Jacob Blake and his family through police uh, brutality and through racial injustice. So very much a stance of that sort of gesture. The next thing I wanted to talk about is something that somewhat surprised me as a sports fan in general, and that is with the MLB. So the MLB decided to postpone some games 
as players walked out, also referring to the Jacob Blake shooting and incident. So the MLB so far was didn't as an organization didn't really have that much political controversy, I would say. They had a lot of controversy in relating to the Astros as an organization cheating, but that, you would only know that if you're, you listen to the media, really, or if you're a sports fan. But I would argue, even if you weren't a sports fan, you probably heard of the incident of the Astros and their uh, scandal that got a whole bunch of attention. But a lot of people, uh, especially as an organization of the MLB, decided to... Uh, Restart. As a company, as an organization, the MLB hasn't really gone into political. Yes, individual players have gone in uh, political in their statements and kind of made it their activism and their way to endorse issues off the field. But on the field, it was rather different. And the Jacob Blake incident at the time it happened did seem to be very harsh. And again, as you heard earlier in the podcast, I argued the... I argue my skepticism over the outright violence, but I'll read this article by Mike Oz in Yahoo Sports. More players and teams around the Major League Baseball working out their game scheduled for Thursday to protest the shooting of Jacob Blake by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Five MLB games have postponed with others possibly on the way. The Boston Red Sox, Oakland Athletics, Minnesota Twins, and Philadelphia Phillies chose not to play earlier on Thursday. According to various reports, the Colorado Rockies-Arizona Diamondbacks game was postponed minutes before first pitch. USA Today Bob Nightingale reports. Phillies were scheduled to play the Nationals, but the Nationals issued a statement saying the two teams decided not to play. The decision in the A's-Rangers game came from the A's, and the Twins players voted not to play their game against the Tigers, as did the Red Sox, according to Julian McWilliams of The Athletic. The decisions came after a day after the Bruins, Reds, Dodgers, Giants, Padres, and Mariners didn't play. The Bruins and Mariners specifically started the protest in baseball. As the Brewers players play 40 miles away from where Blake was shot, and the Mariners have the most black players in MLB. The Phillies, A's, and Twins were the first teams to raise their voices Thursday, but don't figure to be the last. There are our decisions around the lead, according to various reports about the teams postponing games and protests. The A's released a statement from their players Thursday calling the decision a first step in our relentless pursuit of meaningful change. And I'll read their statement from the Oakland A's. Social injustice and systemic racism has been a part of the fabric of our lives for too long. We have the responsibility to use our platform to lend our voices for those who are not being heard. We need to continue having the uncomfortable conversations and work towards being an unfiltered voice for change. These conversations will push the boundaries and enable us to come through on our other side with impactful results. All too often we hear the in the sorry. All too often we hear about the flight of our fellow man and the fell to act. It is long past due that these communities are being heard, seen, understood, and supported. We will not Take the field tonight to help raise awareness for these social issues, not just tonight, but for the collective future. This is the fourth step in our relentless pursuit for meaningful change. 
The Mets considering not playing Thursday as well, according to the Cardinals pitcher Jack Flaherty. And this is by Anthony Dacoma. On a Zoom call with reporters, Cardinals pitcher Jack Flaherty said that the Mets are among those teams discussing whether or not to play tonight. And tonight is referring to today, the 27th of Thursday. Players Alliance announces salary donations. The MLB Players Alliance, a group of 100 former and current black MLB players formed during this time of civil unrest, announced Thursday that its members will be donating its salaries from two Thursdays and Fridays games to help combat racial inequality and aid black families impacted by recent events. The alliance includes current MLB players like Andrew McCutcheon, Aaron Judge, Mookie Betts, Jason Hayward, Dexter Flower, Tim Anderson, and Flowtree. I know that Dexter Howard and Jason Hayward are both black MLB players, if I'm remembering right. And Aaron Judge is obviously the huge rookie uh, of the Yankees that made a whole bunch of attention during uh, every playoffs really that he's been in so far. And I'm going to read the statement by the Players Alliance, and then we'll move to the next and last topic of these protests within the sports leagues. But as I was mentioning earlier, I'm a full fan of players having their voices heard outside of a game. And I guess I'll talk about the general idea of canceling a game due to Jacob Blake's shooting. So canceling a full game is obviously a political move, and they argue to show support for Jacob Blake and the sports community. But at the same time, a lot of fans, I think, will be somewhat angry with these games getting canceled. I would argue that MLB fans in general aren't as going to aren't going to be as angry as would say NBA fans due to the NBA being in playoffs and the baseball being in a shortened season but only really halfway through so far and baseball typically has much longer seasons although this season is a lot less games more than a hundred less games than what are usually played but at the same time a lot of NBA fans as a whole are, know the NBA's stance of how they view topics in racial injustice and police brutality. And everybody who's a good human being also thinks that racial injustice and police brutality are bad and need to be stopped. We just might have different views on how to get that goal accomplished. But the MLB taking a stance and talking about racial injustice and really just making a Black Lives Matter, and I have that in quotation stance, is something I didn't necessarily see coming, and it happened rather fast, as I didn't really hear anything about it happening, and then I got an alert on the phone saying that the first the Milwaukee Bucks have been canceled, canceled the game, and then I saw one that the Mariners, I believe, canceled their game. And they were one of the teams that did, but I believe that was the alert uh, I got on my phone yesterday in relating to baseball. But as I was kind of saying earlier, and I don't know if I really got my full point across, it, I don't know exactly what I think of the MLB protesting or having a, a stance like this. As I said before, I don't think organizations should make something political. Yes, organizations can have their stances. And again, yes, 
having a stance of racial injustice and police brutality are good stances to have. But at the same time, I don't think that you should make something so so harsh or so rapid after an incident you don't even know all the details behind. But at the same time, it is good to be talked about as I just don't think that sports and leads should be really political. I guess it's my one sentence summary to my view on politics and sports. And I was just simply surprised to see the MLB taking a stance because, yes, the MLB isn't necessarily like NASCAR that usually has more conservative-type viewership. But at the same time, the MLB hasn't really taken, uh, taken very many stances that are political so far. But I'll read this incident or this uh, release by the Players' Alliance. And as it says, statement from the Players' Alliance. On behalf of more than 100 black current and former MLB players that make up the Player Alliance, we remain unfiltered by our mission and dedicated to making real and lasting change. The color of our skin is the uniform we wear every day. We cannot change that. What we can change is the plan and injustice for the black community has suffered for far too long. We are determined to use our platform to speak out and encourage our teammates and fans to help make our voices even louder. Our players have collectively designed to donate their salaries on August 27th and 28th, Jackie Robertson Day, to the Players' Allowance, supporting our efforts to combat racial inequality and aid black families and communities deeply affected in the wake of recent events. We cannot stand idly by the, and wait for change in our game or in our community. We encourage our allies and fans to join us in taking action. With our support, we can help and will rewrite our story, creating a more equal world we can live in together. Real quick, those that don't know much about baseball, Jackie Robertson was the first black player of MLB and really made a huge change for the MLB and as the sport it was back then and is now. But I'll continue on to my next article there. The next article is simply just some photos of the protests. And those that are listening on the podcast are not really going to be able to see the photos. So I'm not going to make this too long. As obviously the focus of this live stream is the podcast. But you have the WNBA players all taking the knee in front of all their logos with a playoff broadcast booth. Then you have the famous picture about what I've seen numerous times from this protest of the Milwaukee Bucks court being completely empty. Then you have the stadium uh, at Miller Park, which I believe is the Milwaukee Brewers, and it's just empty. Now, obviously, the crowd's empty. There's no crowd. But then you have in soccer, the Black Lives, they're all wearing Black Lives Matter short shirt, shirts and Black Lives Matter uh, mask, all taking a knee. And then you have a short video of the NHL and that they simply just had their thing wrapped around of Black Lives Matter in Tampa Bay at the at that playoff game tonight. So it would kind of seem that all of these leads are working together almost to make a full-on stance to the Jacob Blake incident. And uh, I don't know if that's necessarily something you could say 100% for sure, but even the NHL making a short little stance is something that really the NHL hasn't done uh, too much or it hasn't really made it super political like, say, the NBA has.
now that we're done with the Kenosha protest and the um, MLB, NBA, WNBA, and other uh, sporting organizations, I was going to quickly talk about Hurricane Laura. Now, Hurricane Laura, or yeah, was the hurricane that I was trying to dodge by going back to my house rather than staying at the college, as it was more in the direct path. But long story short, it turned out not really to make much of a difference. But it was the first week, and anyway, well, you don't want to hear about that. But I thought this article was very interesting, because it talked about that the Lake Charles Confederate Monument uh, got voted to be kept in place, but the hurricane destroyed it. So out of anything you could choose to talk about with Hurricane Laura, you're going to choose to talk about a statue, a Confederate statue, or just simply a statue, and that it got destroyed by the, the, the winds and by the, uh, by the hurricane itself. And I just thought that was rather harsh and rather stupid. But uh, so I'll I'll just read the article, but I'll quickly answer this uh, commenter on YouTube, and he says, "What you drinking?" And I'm in the South, so sweet tea is what I'm drinking, but it's not really sweet because I'm trying to avoid like too much sugar, so it's just kind of like slightly sweet. So it's not really super good if when you think of what sweet tea is. But I'll take a drink on that one. Okay. And this is um, CNN. Hurricane Laura howling winds. I don't know why I'm how I was saying. Hurricane Laura howling winds in Louisiana tore through roofs, shattered windows, and forced thousands of people to seek shelter. The hurricane also toppled a controversial Confederate monument in the heart of downtown Lake Charles. Just two weeks ago, the parish police jury voted 10-4 to keep the South Defenders Monument in place in front of the parish courthouse. But Laura, with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour when it made landfall early Tuesday morning, knocked a 105-year-old statue off its base. Brian Beam is a parish administrator for the police jury. He slept through Laura's eye Eyewall Wednesday evening in his office. When Beam stepped outside in his building Tuesday morning, he was greeted by the toppled Self Defenders Monument, his son Andrew told CNN. It has gotten a lot of controversy lately because the police jury here voted not to remove it for historical reasons, Andrew said. Controversial monuments, especially con- Confederate monuments, have been a subject of nationwide debate following the death of George Floyd at the hand of law enforcement. And that was the big thing. I also talked about this in one of my podcast episodes. I believe episode two or even one, I had a big talk over statues. And in general, my stance over statues, for those that haven't heard it before, haven't watched my YouTube video just off of that issue alone, is essentially I don't really see a statue as being 100% political. But at the same time, you do have to understand that statues do represent a figure that's in greater light. Simply making a statue of something is honoring that person. But I think in a very simple term, statues should, if they want to be removed or if there is talk about removing it, should go through the local government or local avenues and through a vote democratically be removed. If the community wants the statue to be removed, then I would say it should be removed due to 
the community voting to do so. But at the same time, if you say just my independent stance and not taking a whole perspective and making a stance that I think would work best for everyone, just my opinion and my opinion alone, I would say that I think statues and all statues should stay because they don't necessarily represent a political motive. Now, yes, there's probably going to be a statue out there somewhere, but I think should be removed because of whatever reason it might be. But taking just Confederate monuments, I guess I should narrow it down to Confederate statues, just taking Confederate monuments, I think, should be kept only because of historical perspectives and historical reasons. Now, if you think that's a little too harsh, then I think they should be kept in a museum to demonstrate why a statue was made of them in the first place. So that's my general thoughts of statues. Now, when I first made the statement of saying that I don't think all statues should be removed, that's not necessarily a statement that I think would be fully true. I don't know of a statue right now that I would want to see be removed because of whatever reason, but it's hard to say with confidence that you think all statues should stay when you don't know every statue out there. So it is something you have to be careful with using absolutes when it comes to politics and when it comes to your stance. So that's kind of why I retracted there. And again, this whole podcast, this whole dot idea I have of, of making it is talking out loud and thinking over ideas. Even as I have read these articles and thought what I want to talk about, my opinion and things might change as I read it again and maybe pick up on another point or whatever else. And this article is by Fox News. And it says, Hurricane Laura brings tornado threat after Louisiana landfall, Lake Charles severely damaged. And this uh, subheadline reads, at least four people have been killed by falling trees in Louisiana, according to the governor. Heavy rains and winds battered Louisiana Thursday morning as a weakened hur- Hurricane Laura roared northward, threatening to spread further damage will inflant after slamming the Lake Charles area and causing at least four deaths. The historic Hurricane Laura made landfall early Thursday in Cameron, about 45 miles south of Lake Charles, as a dangerous Category 4 hurricane with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. It's since weakened to a tropical storm. As we wake up today, everyone must remember that the threat Laura poses to Louisiana is ongoing. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards tweeted Thursday morning, Stay home, continue to heed the warnings and instructions of local officials, and monitor your local news to stay informed. The first fatally from the storm in Louisiana was a 14-year-old girl who died when a tree fell on her home, according to the governor. And this was by Christina Mask Up Stevens on Twitter. And it says, At Louisiana Governor, says he got the report of the first fatality from a hurricane lore in Louisiana. A 14-year-old girl who died when a tree fell in her home. We do expect that there could be more fatalities. We do expect... Yeah, sorry, read that. There's not along the coast. Hurricane Laura's winds have been very strong as the storm has come ashore and through Louisiana. At an afternoon news conference, Edwards said at least three other deaths in this state have been linked to falling trees from the storm. I am asking that we lift up all these families in prayer, he said, as a storm roared through in Louisiana, a 333-mile-per-hour gust and an 85-mile-per-hour sustained wind 
were measured in Lake Charles. And it goes on to talk about a little bit more about some damage of buildings, especially this one building if you're watching on live stream that has many windows broken, really almost all windows broken, and just a few that are still there. Uh, but most of these buildings are looking very damaged from the wind. Uh, nothing really fallen over yet from images I've seen, but there's a large smoke cloud on this one image that I think would probably be from a lightning strike or something like that as it kind of caught on fire. But you just kind of see some general damage that you might see with a hurricane, especially if you remember Hurricane uh, uh, Ike or Katrina or, Her or Harvey or any of those other major storm events that have happened uh, you might you you'll see similar photos for those that are listening on podcasts. Now we're moving to two articles about COVID nineteen. Obviously, COVID is is such a huge issue. Even around uh, grocery store, you have to wear masks. You know, all these places you're required to wear a mask. The college I go to has a mask policy, and you have to wear it 24-7 uh, besides really your dorm room. Inside your own dorm room is really the only time that you can have your mask off. So it's kind of created a very interesting scenario walking around and seeing everybody have their mask on when going to class or whatever else. So these huge mask policies, as described by WHO, the World Health Organization, or the CDC, and all these uh, companies are these uh, places of trust, or whatever you want to call them, have said that these masks are something that should happen. And I know that the college had taken it very seriously. So the whole COVID crisis is something that is huge and something we need to to account for and obviously it's something that I'm going to be talking about probably at least a little bit on every podcast but I don't want to drown you with more COVID news because if you watch any sort of news that's all you're going to hear about and we'll get into the article by The Hill by Nathan Wixel, Jesse and Peter. Overnight health care, shifting CDC testing guideline, sparks backlash. Democrats offer lower price tag for COVID-19 aid, but, st but stalemate persists. Trump administration to purchase 150 million rapid COVID-19 tests. By the way, that is a handful of a headline. Welcome to Thursday's Overnight Healthcare. CDC Director Robert Rittenfeld attempted to clarify the agency's new guidelines on testing, but his clarification seemed to create confusion. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she's going to restart negotiations with the White House on coronavirus relief, and the administration is planning to purchase nearly every one of the Abbott's new rapid COVID-19 tests. Shifting CDC testing guidelines sparks backlash. So I guess they're, they're writing this one article for all those sub-headlines. Uh, that's what it seems. Public health experts warn that the Trump administration's changed testing guidelines is a step backward in the COVID-19 response that could lead to more cases, outbreaks, and deaths. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, altered its guide guidance this week to say people who have been exposed to COVID-19 don't necessarily need a test if they don't have symptoms, threatening contact tracing efforts which seek to stop lines of transformation. The change 
um, alarmed public health officials and experts who note that about 40% of people with COVID-19 are asymptomatic, meaning they will never show symptoms of the virus and won't know they have it without testing, but can spread it to others who may become seriously ill or die. The CDC director, Robert Renenfield, attempted to clarify the changes, and I just clicked the dang uh, advert, so just wait a little, wait a couple seconds, it's reloading here. The CDC director, Robert Rittenfield, attempted to clarify the charges Thursday by saying people who had been in close contact with the confirmed COVID-19 cases may be considered for testing. However, the change guidance remains on the agency's website. A spokesperson for the Department of Health and Human Services, the CDC partner agency, doubled down on its changes and Rittenfield Thursday statement saying it, it amplifies the policy and in no way changes the policy. So that's all I really wanted to talk about with this article. Now, obviously, these articles are all going to be linked in wherever you might be listening to your podcast or wherever uh, you're listening to now if you're watching live and uh, especially on YouTube, but um, my hope, my main point was the fact that the CDC is wanting to have testing done to people who are having symptoms. Now, obviously, the, the first question I have to the whole issue is, is if they have enough tested, enough tests as, as a whole to um, test people who want to be tested. So in other words, are they low on testing? And that is why they are wanting to make sure that uh, there's enough tests for people that are feeling symptoms just to make sure. Because if tests are low, it makes somewhat, somewhat, it, it makes somewhat sense to have uh, testing reduced to people who have symptoms due to the fact that there may not be enough tests but at the same time, as a whole organization, it is smart to test as many people as possible with something like COVID to make sure that people are safe when visiting relatives and whatever else might be happening. Because as it said in the article, over 40% of people are asymptomatic, meaning that they simply don't know they have symptoms. This next one is by CNN. And it says, Fauci says he was in surgery when task force discussed CDC testing guidelines. While White House Coronavirus Task Force member Dr. Anthony Fauci said he was undergoing surgery and not in the August 20th task force meeting for a discussion on updated U.S. Centers for Disease Control Prevention Guidelines. That suggested asymptomatic people may not need to be tested for COVID-19, even if they have been in close contact with an infected person. I was under general anesthesia in the operating room and was not part of any discussion or deliberation regarding the new testing recommendations at the meeting, Fauci told CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. I hope I said that right. I am concerned about the interpretation of those recommendations and worried it will give people the incorrect assumption that asymptomatic spread is not great concern. In fact, it is, said Fauci, director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Fauci's comments undercut claims by ADM Barrett Grodler, the administrator coronavirus testing point person, who told reporters on Wednesday... Sorry, who told reporters on Wednesday that the new guidelines had the White House Coronavirus Task Force stamp of approval. 
Asked whether Fauci signed off on the guidelines, Crowder said yes, all the docs signed off on this before it even went to the task force level. So it seems like Dr. Fauci is either lying or, or if he was in surgery, I don't know if that necessarily makes too much of a matter, too much of, of a difference. But at the same time, by saying he was in surgery, he's kind of shrugging off the blame he might get for this uh, procedure or for this guidelines if he himself doesn't think that they are necessarily good for the people and for the uh, nation. So he's kind of shrugging off the the stance of what the CDC decided to show and what the task force then agreed on for uh, coronavirus. But at the same time, if he wasn't in surgery, it would just simply be a lie and make Fauci even more of a liar than he already is. Because a lot of people, especially... Well, I don't... A lot of people are somewhat skeptical of Fauci, is all I'll say there. Now, I'm going to have a fun sort of article. I didn't know exactly where to put this, and I wanted to put it before I got kind of talking about the RNC, because the RNC is still going on. I mean, I did talk about the DNC while it was still going on as well. But on my next podcast, and I might even have a smaller video on both the DNC and RNC on my YouTube, I don't know for sure if I'm going to do that yet. But I am thinking about it. So I didn't want to spend too much time on the RNC because I was going to want the main part of the podcast to be over Kenosha and not the RNC as the RNC is active. But I am going to talk about the RNC in either my next podcast or an independent YouTube video in full as, well, as I did with the DNC on my podcast. Tiger King Season 2 will feature incarnated Joe Exotic claims husband Dylan Passage. The hit Netflix documentary series, which first were released in March of this year, follows the rivalry between former zookeeper Joseph Allen Malalando Passage, aka Joe Exotic, and Carol Baskin, the CEO of Big Cat Rescue. Passage Passage spoke to Good Morning Britain yesterday, August 26. I have done a little bit of filming for that season too. I do not know yet know the release date, but it's going to be very interesting because it will tell a little bit of Joe's arrest and afterwards, he said. I know there's going to going to be some phone call recordings of Joe that is going to be in it. There is no filming since it's, he's incarcerated. Sorry. Meanwhile, it was purported in May that Nicolas Cage will star as Manana Passage in separate eight-episode eight scripted series about the animal trader. This forthcoming series is one of the conformed projects to come out after Tiger King's success on Netflix. Additionally, Saturday Night Live star Kate McKinnon is also set to portray Baskin in a forthcoming TV drama adapted from the events of Tiger King, which has been given a straight-to-series order by NBC. The upcoming series is reportedly not a fictional adaptation of Tiger King, but is instead based on Joe Exotic. So, that was just some general news about Tiger King, as it was such a huge topic, and I thought it was rather funny that it's getting a second season, and that there's these independent projects getting talked about it on it as well. I remember at the time, a lot of people were thinking who would be able to play Joe Exotic if they were to make a movie, and Nicolas Cage was one of those people that constantly got talked about. So, it is kind of funny seeing Nicolas Cage actually be uh, casted as the role of Joe Exotic. 
Now I'm going to talk about the RNC and these two articles here. Uh, and these articles are a little bit different than speeches because as I just said a little earlier, I'm thinking of either making a independent YouTube video or on my next podcast next week once all this RNC is finished. Uh, so either way I decided to do it, I wanted to play some of the speeches or at least talk about some of the speeches as I did with the DNC when it was happening. So these articles are slightly different because I didn't want to take away from that. But they're both uh, in relating to the RNC. Anti-Trump activists plan protest concert to disrupt President RNC's acceptance speech. Anti-Trump, and this is happening today. Anti-Trump activists as organizing protests and a concert to make noises in downtown Washington, D.C. with the intention of disrupting the president's planned outdoor acceptance speech at the RNC on Thursday night. President Trump will formally accept the Republican nomination from the White House and deliver a speech to close the convention from the South Lawn. Fencing and barriers have been bolstered outside the White House and head of expected demonstrations. A firework display is suspected at the Washington Monument at the conclusion of his remarks. Organizing group shutdown, DNC announced it would crash Trump's party with a rally Thursday night. The action began at noon with a Power to People rally for workers' rights held outside Jeff Bale's Washington, D.C. home. Protesters appeared to construct a guillotine on... What? Oh, a guillotine. (laughs) Construct a guillotine in Bezos' driveway. Guillotines were used to behead elites in French. We all kind of know that. The protest drew about 100 demanding a $30 minimum wage... At Amazon, a $30 minimum wage? What the hell? $20 is already pretty high. I can talk about minimum wage and and what it would do to the economy and make that a whole separate video on YouTube or podcast or whatever else. But that is just absolutely outrageous. But I'll continue. Give a good reason why we don't deserve a $30 minimum wage. When this man makes 4000 a second, former Amazon employee Chris Small said, According to the Washington Examiner this week, Bezos became the first person ever worth $200 billion. Grassroots organizers are planning a proposed party at the Black Lives Matter Plaza from 7.30 to midnight. The party will include three stages and five DG- DJs. So obviously the goal of this protest, peaceful protest, is to make it noisy so that Trump's speech either becomes not as important or blurred. Um, But I thought this was rather interesting. It might be effective depending on how well done it is. But at the same time, I do think it's just going to draw even more attention to the RNC and to what Trump said. So I don't really know if this protest is really going to be that effective from a political perspective. But I'll go on to the next and last article of the podcast. I'll take a quick drink break just to make sure. And this is by Politico. Racism, sexism congregate on Trump's Twitch channels during RNC. The Trump campaign is streaming the RNC on the popular live streaming website and has created a forum. It's forum full of conspiracy theories, vulgar coronavirus debates, and racist, sexist, and anti-Semitic memes. And it is comment section of an official Trump campaign live stream. 
During the RNC, the Trump campaign and GOP have been airing the President Donald Trump boosting content on Twitch, a popular Amazon-owned live streaming website renewed for its massive gaming community. The campaign's official Twitch account, as well as the GOPC convention, the official Republican National Convention affiliated account, has aired the past three nights of the convention to Trump's campaign, 133,000 followers, and to the GOP's convention, 4,800 followers. And thanks to the camp- campaign's apparent choice to leave the comments unmoderated, the site provides an unedited real-time window into the base incidents of some Trump youngest, most fervent supporters. These The remarks range from absolutist tweeting profanity over and over to overt fascism of female speakers. President Trump is going to give the N-word pass, wrote user blah blah blah. Referring to a a memed phrase that supposedly gives one presumption to use the defensive slur. Over in the Trump campaign chat, other users flooded the chat with emotes, Trump customizable version of emojis, depicting racist images during speeches from people of color, sexualizing female speakers, and posting anti-Black Lives Matter images and anti-Semitic memes. In the social media universe, a Twitch account can reach a certain type of user, overwhelmingly white, young, and male, making it a vulnerable platform for any political organization. Trump's movement, built on power of Twitter, has a stronger presence on Twitch compared to other American political campaigns and the RNC, and has been with all things Trump has followed suit. The Democratic National Committee, on the other hand, did not stream its conviction on Twitch, though it did in 2016. And Trump's 2020 rival Joe Biden does not have a Twitch account, yet by expanding the, its digital reach to Twitch, Trump operation has created a platform that highlights elements of the president's online base that reveals an offensive commentary. And with Twitch lagging, but our Twitch lagging behind other platforms like Twitter that have stated political content more closely. The forum has become a home for those seeking to communicate with less interface. Ooh, this article. Wow. Okay. Before I dive back into the article and read a little bit more, I just wanted to give my thoughts of this issue first. So Twitch as a platform is something that has had some political perspectives on it before. There are a few talk show hosts and slash podcast that I've watched on Twitch. And obviously, I'm on Twitch myself at Roundtable Talk, where I do this podcast and some other uh, live streams, usually my book series. But that's kind of besides the point. The main focus is that there's not too many political commentaries on Twitch. And that is because Twitch does have a harsh, one-sided approach to politics. And it definitely leans more towards the left than the right. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's 100% wrong. But at the same time, it is known within the Twitch community that it does that. But it's also, Twitch isn't necessarily a perfect platform by any means. We all know of some Twitch incidents with Dr. Disrespect or other things where they banded somebody or had lesser policies for a certain gender. That's one of the big things with Twitch is that if you're a chick on Twitch, you're probably going to have more freedom than a man on Twitch that does the same thing. In other words, if you decide to get up and show your body off sexually 
you know, a little bit more than just usually, like, by dressing provocatively, instead of, okay, rephrase. In other words, if, if a man were to get up and show one of his uh, body parts, and a woman decided to get up and show one of her body parts in a provocative way, more than just simply dressing, uh, Twitch in the past has basically showed that they are more willing to work with women than they are the man. In other words, the man would probably get banded, while the woman might have her account suspended for a little bit, but probably not even suspended. And that's just something in general the people who have followed the Twitch community know about. Or at least if they don't follow just their one gaming streamer, as Twitch is obviously mostly gaming and not mostly political. But at the same time, Bernie Sanders also had a Twitch account. And he spoke on it occasionally, but he usually had college type of students who ran his Twitch account and kind of talked in a talk show type of format about issues. So Twitch isn't only just one-sided towards a Republican perspective, as Bernie Sanders is obviously way, way left compared to Trump, who some argue is way, way right. So they're they're both they're allowing both to exist. And going towards the first comments about not moderating the chat is very much a Trump perspective. Trump doesn't want uh, freedom of speech to be taken any less. Now, obviously, you could argue that that's not good, but at the same time, I think the article is mostly wrong for the simple fact that the gaming community is famous for trolling. Trolling is something they love to do, and it's something that is kind of funny and something that uh, many people uh, like to do as basically their hobby is as trolling. And like I just said, the gaming community is almost famous for that. So thinking that somebody's going to go on Trump's RNC, Democratic, or sorry, Republican National Committee, and not troll is just absurd. There's obviously going to be trolls, and there's going to be people that are going to say these nasty things just to make you think that Trump supporters are that way. And at the same time, there are going to be Trump supporters that do think that way and do type those mad words or whatever else you might want to call them. So, but at the same time, I think that Trump is doing that to simply show that freedom of speech on the platform of Twitch. So this article is just rather absurd. And uh, I'll read a little bit more and we'll continue on from there. In the social media universe, a Twitch account can reach... Oh, we already read that. There is... There's always objectable content on every platform, especially ex by anonymy, said Hassan Piker, a progressive Twitch streamer and nearly half a million followers who formerly hosted the Young Turts, a streaming political talk show. An RC spokesperson acknowledged the existence of the crass commentary, but noted that such remarks were unformally common across the internet and not Trump-specific comment. Again, there is a lot of trolls. Tens of millions of viewers watch our convention content on various digital channels. The spokesperson said in a statement, Unfortunately, online chat forums can sometimes include virtualic language from both sides of the aisle. These type of comments are not representative of the vast majority of viewers, and we attempt to moderate them when possible. The Trump campaign did not respond to a request for a comment. And then it talks about a little bit more about Twitch as an organization itself. So you can obviously read the article, uh, the rest of the article, if you wish to do so. But this is article is 
wrong in really a lot of ways, and I might make a whole video. I promised in a lot of videos on this podcast, so I don't know if I'm going to get to every one, uh, but there's been a lot of ma- main topics to talk about within this week's podcast, and this is one that I just think is wrong in a lot of ways, because I think that it focuses on internet trolling and taking it too serious. Obviously saying, you know, the N-word and other things is wrong and something that shouldn't necessarily be said. But at the same time, just because as soon as you make something political, there's going to be trolling with it. And there's going to be some people that generally believe it. But it's hard to weed out the simple trolls and the people that may just believe it just for that sake. So with that, uh, I appreciate all of those who have are watching now through the live stream on my YouTube and DLive at Roundtable Decision and my Twitch at Roundtable Talk. I appreciate uh, the, the person on YouTube for your comment. I don't know exactly what your name is besides Pound Pound, but I do enjoy your American flag there. Highly appreciate that. I hope you like my content. And I hope those who are listening on the podcast through Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever else you might find your podcast, you have enjoyed it. And stay tuned for next week for my next podcast. And if you liked what you heard, please check out Freedom Scoop with all the other content creators, as well as my YouTube channel where I post independent videos at Roundtable Decision. Again, appreciate you all and have a good rest of the day.